0: Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today?
0: Oh, everything's good. Before we get started, I should mention the Views Express podcast I do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have a special translational episode for you. And I think we've all been hearing about cuff biology and how it's kind of revolutionized healing rates for years now, but suddenly there are actually a number of options on the market. So my hope here is to discuss a few of these options, understand the current evidence, get a glimpse into the future, and to talk about these topics, I've invited two experts. First, we have Dr. Brian Feely, who's the chief of sports and shoulder at UCF. Brian, welcome to the podcast.
2: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: And next we have dr david kovacevic he's recently been on the faculty at both yale and columbia he's transitioned to private practice but has a background studying um, amniotic fluids and rotator cuff disease and i think has a lot of understanding of the basic biology here so david welcome to the podcast
3: yeah thanks peter thanks uh, rachel for having me i think it's gonna be a great uh, great hour
0: all right so let's start before we get into what's available on the market let's start with what's available locally at the site so brian you know, we've we've heard for a lot of time about the local environment for healing and how we can maximally activate it. We've heard about microfracture. What are your thoughts? Are you microfracturing the tuberosity? How do you get the most out of the local environment without adding anything else in?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, in general, I think for the most part, especially as we've transitioned to smaller anchors and therefore usually having more fixation sites and more places where we essentially... Um, Drill into the greater tuberosity. I haven't typically done anything with the with any microfractures or any additional stimulation to get that so called crimson duvet. Um, typically, if it's a large enough tear that I can fit two anchors in, I'll try to fit two anchors in partially because I think uh, more fixation is good, and more fixation I think leads to lower overall forces on the on the tendon to bone, which increases healing. And I think that additional bleeding um, is going to increase some healing. I'm also a little concerned when I start micro to try to stimulate healing that I'll mess up and I will end up poking too many holes and I'll end up creating something that I'm not going to be able to get good fixation with my uh, anchors. Not that I've ever actually done that before, but or maybe a couple of times.
0: What are your thoughts, David? Are you, are you microfracturing the tuberosity? If so, how are you doing that? Are you drilling? Are you using an awl?
3: Yeah, routinely I, I don't uh, microfracture. I, you know, the group out of uh, Southern California has shown that that does work well for them. As Brian mentioned, you know, the crimson Duet. So you know, I think that one, one approach there is when you're preparing a greater tuberosity, if you've got a full thickness tear and uh, let's say the entire GT is exposed, I think how you do bone preparation is critical there. So when you use that, uh, you know, the shaver there um, or more, or the uh, motorized burr, you know, are you uh, completely denuding uh, that uh, that cortical bone there or is it just partial or is it full? So, you know, everyone's different there. So for me, for my larger massive tears that are repairable, you know, I'd like to, um, you know, use that, uh, use the shaver. Sometimes the burr if, if the cortical bone is really, really hard. Most of the time though, zone these like subacute and mostly the, the chronic tears, uh, you know, literature has shown and you'll see that anecdotally intra op is that the, the GT, the bone quality is somewhat poor. So you really don't need to use a motorized burr, but um so I'll I'll denude a little bit of that cortical uh surface there to get some bony bleeding. Sometimes I'll turn off the uh the inflow, uh make sure that, that I'm pretty happy with it. And so that in essence um we want to get that bleeding bed going there. And uh, essentially for me. You know, if I would microfracture, I'd like to be able to control the microfracture. So I'd likely use, um, you know, a small drill bit uh, or a K-wire uh, versus using the all-wear, you know, it may not be as controlled. And especially in soft bone, uh, poor quality bone, you know, you may you may go too deep in, into the canal, which which would not be good.
1: Let me ask you guys about a acromioplasty. So this has been a hot topic for a variety of reasons recently in the last five years. But with respect to the topic at hand, there's been a big argument, long standing argument for our knee surgeons that meniscus repairs heal more reliably with combined ACL reconstruction because of the release of marrow elements into the bone when you're drilling your ACL tunnels. Now, can a chromoplasty play a similar role, or is a chromoplasty not helpful for rotator cuff healing? David, let's start with you. Thoughts?
3: Yeah, I'd say that you know, there's some good data. It's a little bit older data, but from Japan, essentially showing that uh, once you do the acromioplasty there, that you know they were able to identify the factors in the cells that, that are available locally, and, and so you have your typical, you know, cytokines and some of your typical growth factors that are locally available once you do the acromioplasty. So, um, does that mean that I'm going to be doing an acromioplasty on every single patient? Absolutely not. It, it's you know, it, it, I try to. Uh, make my decisions that are they're very patient specific so let's say for example they have a massive rotator cuff tear uh, i'm not going to be doing an acromioplasty or a formal takedown of the the ca ligament an arthroscopic sub, you know subperiosteal dissection there uh, because i'm really concerned about anterior superior escape uh, so regardless of how, how well you do the rotator cuff repair and a massive rotator cuff tear uh, we know that those inherently do not heal well and if you, you know, release the CA ligament, um, which is an important stabilizing structure in these massive cuffs, you're gonna, you know, unfortunately put the patient at greater risk for failure of that and, uh, potentially needing maybe a reverse if they do develop anterior superior escape because you iatrogenically, uh, took down the, um, uh, the CA ligament. So for me, you know, when would I do an acromioplasty? It would be more of my, like, uh, you know, let's say like, what's my clinical exam look like? They've got positive Hawkins, positive NEARS. Maybe they have a calcified CA ligament, and this is a smaller or medium-sized tear. And then when you go in there arthroscopically, you know, what does the CA ligament look like? Does it look pristine? Uh, Does it look, um, you know, injected, synovitic, uh, frayed? You know, as we know, like from all the uh, the chronic overuse um, that you're having, you know, the CA ligament just has seen some damage. So in that sense, uh, you know, I'll do an acromioplasty in that situation. And so, yeah, I think that'd be great, great for healing in that sense. But, you know, the smaller tears, I don't I don't worry about them not healing. It's more of the large, massive tears that, that concern me. So um, acromioplasty does have a role in my practice, but I use it selectively, and it's more uh, a patient-centered, patient-specific uh, decision-making process.
1: And Brian, how about you? What's the role for your chromoplasty in your cuffs? And do you think the same theory when we talk about ACL surgery and drilling the tunnels applies here with rotator cuff repair?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I remember being a resident and kind of, let's see, from 2001 to 2007 and hating doing notchplasties and hated doing acromioplasty because no matter how well you thought you did, and attending would always come in and do it better. And when I started doing hip scopes and doing um, um, femoral plasties, I felt the same thing. I was like, this is all parts of surgery I really want to eliminate. Um, for acromioplasties, I left um, the acromioplasty burr um, back in New York. And I don't think I've done more than a dozen acromioplasties in the last. 10 years, and maybe two or three in the last five years. Um, my, you know, In terms of whether or not it actually helps healing, I think it's different when you look at what you're asking in the knee versus what you're asking for in the shoulder. In the knee, you're asking blood to get to an area that isn't typically going to do meniscus repair. In general, if I'm doing a cuff repair, I'm looking at trying to maximize the tendon to bone healing and creating a watertight repair. I am really, really hopeful that any blood that's in the um, subacromial space isn't really getting down around my repair, because if it is, then I don't think I've got a very good repair. So any of the augmentation strategies that I like to think about are gonna come from bone up, not acromial side down. Now, do I have any good science to back that up? Mm, I don't think so. I think the data suggests that we don't need to do an acromioplasty in terms to change our outcomes, but there's no real downside. I think David's absolutely right. Like in some cases, the downside will be that you can promote anterior superior escape, but for the majority of the time, especially for small, medium tears where you just feel like you need a little bit more of a view, it's probably totally fine. But for me, I'm not going to use it to improve because I think if I'm using that to get to an area that I'm hoping... The blood can't get to, then I'm not using the right rationale. Yeah, Brian, I, I
0: I completely agree with you, and I also David, I think your points are well taken. I I guess my question here is: this is so to me, this is like where the biology first begins. You know, we had this old argument from the knee, this old evidence from the knee. We had the evidence that David so adroitly brought up about from Japan about the, the elements released when you do the acromioplasty. and then. We have all these clinical studies that when there's multiple randomized clinical trials that show no difference in healing rates. So I think this is a good example of how maybe you can make an argument in your head and find ways in which maybe it doesn't connect clinically. And you brought up maybe the reasons why about the fact that the acromion doesn't connect with your repair if you do the repair properly. I wanted to ask you the same thing about bursal stem cells, which are kind of the newest, (laughs) hottest Local adjuvant, and there's been a lot of talk about how you can, during your subcromial bursectomy, take some, some take, somehow take those contents, and then you could trap them and put them back into your repair. What are your thoughts on this, Brian? Is this is this something that's going to change our practice? What does the future hold for this, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I think the point of care stem cell treatments, I think, are as promising as anything else, at least at this point in time. So if you're thinking about like, well, where can I harvest viable stem cells, um, concentrate them and then put them back in an area that's going to increase my healing, let's say 10, 20%, and being a, be able to do that in a cost-effective manner, I think in the shoulder, you're looking at three potential places. You're looking at um, essentially from the bone marrow, so proximal humerus, which is, has had some variable outcomes. Uh, variable um, amounts of stem cells, but they're essentially bone marrow stem cells um, from the um, bursa, which is gonna include some of the fat in the area. So it's gonna be similar to harvesting from the fat pad. Um, And then other bony sources, which I don't think are nearly as viable. Some people have talked about doing distal clavicle um, harvest, which I think if you've already got the proximal humerus, you've already got it exposed, doesn't really make all that much sense. In terms of whether or not that's gonna be the next great clinical avenue, Um, I think the number of stem cells that are actually available that are truly stem-like in nature and whether or not they're going to promote healing, it still remains to be seen. But I think overall, it's promising, um, and it's more than some of the, I would say, off-the-shelf options that are um, more frequently used.
0: What are your thoughts, David? I'm, I'm sure you've heard all this talk recently about bursal stem cells. Do you think this is the future? Well, I
3: think it's something that definitely needs to be looked at. So, I, you know, I agree with everything that, that Brian has, has already brought up. So, I think that, um, you know, essentially this is a lot of the work that's coming out of uh, Connecticut, you know, with, with Gus uh, Mazaka's group. And so, I think that, you know, it's really important to do that. But the question is, you know, is it really point of care? You know, it's no different than PRP or BMAC, for example. What are we injecting? How much of that are we injecting? So when you're talking about you know i don't like to use the word stem cells because that's a misnomer um you know when you look at the international society for cell therapy they they've outlined some basic criteria for what a a stem cell actually is so i I like to use the word connected tissue progenitor cells and so but you know if it's truly going to be stem cell like you know it has to meet three three criteria you know one is that you know these cells have to be have to stick onto plastic Second is, can they, you know, differentiate into bone, you know, cartilage and fat? And and the third thing is they have to express specific cell markers, right? So right now, we don't have that point of care test intraoperatively where we can determine all of this. So can we harvest subacromial bursa on every single rotator cuff repair? Absolutely. Can we, in the back table, spin it down and and isolate it and, and break it up potentially with some collagenase in the back table? Absolutely. But what are we actually injecting? And then when you look at the the cost curve, are we actually like you know improving uh what we're looking for, which at at the end of the day is can we improve structural healing rates? So I think I think it's a great idea and it needs to be further explored. Uh, but again, like it's gonna require some um you know, some type of point of care test and some safety and you know, I think safety and efficacy you don't have to worry about, but we're talking about effectiveness. So that's a different question. And so you are know, gonna have to have a really good control group, and then you have this experimental group, um, and you'll be you'll have to be able to show that these the structural healing rates, uh, you know, can be improved with, with the addition of these subacromial um, bursal um, connective tissue progenitor cells. And so, you know, that we're, we're not there yet, but I think it's definitely exciting, and, and there's a lot of groups that are looking at it. So, uh, you know, something that de- definitely uh, I think we should be on the lookout for in the future.
2: Yeah, I'm going to butt in because this brings up a really good point. I think David's points, or a few really good points. First, um, what we call stem cells is very variable. And what we call, what the general public calls stem cells, we probably shouldn't be calling stem cells. These should be called um, exactly what David said, connective tissue progenitors. Um, But that doesn't necessarily as fancy for patients. Um, I think the other thing in some of Gus Mazzocca's studies Mm -hmm. is really interesting is the people that you would probably most want this from are the ones that have the least viable stem cell or con- connective tissue progenitor. So especially older patients have um, a much more difficult time forming colony forming units. So even though these um, connective tissue progenitors are there, um, they may not be as viable. And then when you what hasn't been explored are these other patients that we really think are going to be the ones that need these um, augmentation strategies. People with older, with um, comorbidities, they're older, they've got bigger tears. Are these cells going to be as viable for these patients? Because if they're not, then we're, we've we got the wrong strategy for the wrong patients or the wrong strategy for the right patients. And we really need to be able to drill down and look at efficacy um, on an on a almost case-by-case basis, which is gonna be hard to do with the, with the appropriate cost right now. But hopefully in the next five, 10 years, we'll be able to delineate some sort of point of care efficacy by looking at some subset of these cells at the time of harvest.
3: Yeah, and the other thing to add there is, you know, with these, um, the chronicity of the injury, right? So what, what is, that, what is the, the, homeostatic, the homeostatic state of the bursa uh, in an acute injury state versus a subacute versus a chronic? And then you throw in their age and then you throw in the medical comorbidities. And so, you know, all of that, you know, it's hard to really understand, you know, what you're getting. So you're right. You're absolutely right, Brian, in terms of I've got like a 70 year old patient. I want to use their subacromial bursal cells, but, you know, will these cells actually respond? Or are they just going to remain quiet and they're not going to be able to um, differentiate into, into a, you know, a fibroblast uh, or into a tenocyte? Right, so these these are these are the challenges. So, you know, there's definitely things uh, out there uh, that are available now that we can do, but are we actually, uh, you know, making an impact? You know, it's it's hard it's hard to know right now. And I think one of the things that's really important here for you know our listeners who are our trainees, so our medical students, our residents, our fellows, you know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of data out there. So how do you kind of swim through all of that and come out on top? And so I think like this is where, you know, clinical practice guidelines, particularly with the AOS uh, and what they uh, published in 2019 with regards to rotator cuff healing is really important because I think that at least sets a baseline and tells us what's been done over the past five to 10 years and how good that evidence is and, you know, what are some of those recommendations, right? So, and what the 2019 guidelines show is that biologically, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so I think that's what's exciting. And I think, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the next five to 10 years when the CPG gets updated. But if I was a resident, that, that would be my, my starting point, understanding, you know, do I do marrow stimulation techniques? Do I not? Do I use some type of biologic? Do I not? Do I use some type of scaffold? Do I not? Does it impact patient-reported outcomes or does it impact structural healing rates, right? So some of these biologics do impact the structural healing rates for the better but they haven't shown to show differences with regards to patient reported outcomes versus your standard repair.
2: I'm confused. I thought all the residents were reading OKU and staying up to date the whole time. Is that not what's happening?
3: (laughs) I'm not sure. I think you'd probably know better than me, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of resources out there, right? So, well we have some problem. of your
2: former uh we have some of your former residents from columbia they seem pretty well well uh wet at this point at least
3: no they're awesome and, and i hear they're doing a fantastic job so they're
2: at great. least one of them is at least one of them <laughs> <laughs> I, I, got an <laughs> I
3: got an idea i got an idea but no comments
1: Let me ask you guys, you know, following up on this, um, in addition to bursal cells, there's a lot of other potential sources of cellular elements in the body that are point of care autologous and available. Do you guys think that there is any utility in using autologous treatments from elsewhere in the body, such as bone marrow or MFAT or PRP at the time of rotator cuff repair? Do you think that these different autologous sources need to be concentrated. How do you apply these sources if you do? And when do you do that? Uh, Brian, let's start with you.
2: Yeah. I wish I could say as somebody who talks a lot about biologics that I use them, but I've never figured out how to um, effectively use them. And part of that was based on my experience as a fellow. We were doing a study with Dr. Rodeo and It was, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was painful to put in fibrin clots and PRP at the time. Um, Our techniques have gotten better, but I still haven't seen a way that that doesn't wash out within the first hour, two hours. So I think it's pragmatic cells that we either concentrated or not concentrated. We put under a repair. I'm not convinced they actually stay there. Um, I think for me, clinical use would have to be in some sort of scaffold or some sort of method to keep the cells uh, viable and either secreting or stimulating the local environment for a period of six to ten weeks for me to consider it truly a biologic regenerative strategy for tendon to bone healing. So for me at this point, I don't use any additional cells. Um, Even when I consider what, what sort of augmentation strategies I would like to do that my algorithm doesn't enter into cellular based therapies it bridges more into patches graphs, or if things are looking really bad a tendon transfer because i don't think we've under we can take something for like prp or bmac and say well it's going to it's going to work for absolutely in the body. So we're going to try it on rotator cuffs, even though nothing else is really held for rotator cuffs. So my go-to for large chronic tears is not going to be something that's a biologic strategy at this point.
1: And David, how about you? Similar thoughts, different thoughts? Is there any time that you'll use um, some sort of autologous cellular source, whether it be bone marrow, fat, or PRP for your rotator cuff repairs?
3: Sure. Yeah. So Short short answer is that I don't routinely uh, do augmentation. Um, If I was going to do augmentation, what are my indications? So someone who's over the age of 65, uh, someone who's a smoker. But again, you know, I I would want to know what their urine continent levels are before, and, and we would have a frank discussion about trying to mitigate nicotine use for the first six weeks after surgery, knowing that the first three months in these large massive tears are critical for healing. Other folks would be at those with autoimmune disorders, folks who are on oral corticosteroids for some reason, uh, you know, whether it's for chronic asthma um, or maybe sarcoid or some other things. And then obviously, like how many cortisone injections, right? So I typically limit uh, one cortisone shot in these degenerative rotator cuff tears but sometimes you will get uh, patients in your office who've already had multiple cortisone shots. Even though there's some great data now coming out of special surgery that uh, retrospective review, but showed that uh, more than one cortisone shot you know, deleteriously impacts rotator cuff tendon bone healing. So in terms, of if I was going to use um, uh, to augment the repair, uh, it would also be in my larger uh, tears, my repairable tears, um, where I can at least bring the tendon over and cover at least 50% of the footprint. My goal is to try to cover the footprint 100% all the time. Of course, that's not possible, right? So in these chronic injuries where you have more tendon retraction uh, and there's some muscle changes. Um, and so if I was going to augment it, um, of course, you can use BMAC, you can use PRP, uh, and then you could also harvest fat, whether it's from... Uh, from their abdomen so i think that for me um i don't you know again i like to look at the the evidence what's the best available evidence out there and quite frankly prp just you know hasn't hasn't held to that standard where i can say that consistently it's gonna it's gonna you know be coming out to the top and be the cream of the crop it's just not um the koreans have shown consistently that using pure prp gel uh, will uh improve you know structural healing rates, but when you look at some of the other um, places around the world, that that's not necessarily the case. And in terms of impacting the patient-reported outcomes, really there's no differences whether you use PRP or or you don't. And so knowing the type of PRP that you're using is also critical, right? So the platelet-rich fibrin matrix that that Brian talks about with with his time with with uh, with Scott, uh, with uh, Scott Rodeo, you know, they showed that um, delivering platelet-rich fibrin matrix actually increased uh, failure rate. So there was a, a lower structural healing rate. I think it was about 40% of their repairs there uh, did not heal. And I think they used ultrasound as as the way to, to assess healing there. So for me, you know, if I was gonna use PRP, I'd be using pure PRP gels. I wouldn't be using pure uh, platelet-rich fiber and matrix. In terms of BMAC, we just don't know. There's just not enough there. Um, Nicholas uh, P, uh PUZ, I'm probably like um, mispronouncing his last name, but from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, they've done a really nice systematic review showing us that, again, with BMAC, no difference than PRP. We don't know what we're injecting. There needs to be a standardization of the methodology. And then the last one, uh, you know, I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to harvest fat. So uh, for me, if I was going to augment, I'd use platelet rich plasma and it'd be a PRP gel type and I'd interpose it at the interface, because that's where the best data is right now that we have published uh, out uh, in in the, in the medical literature.
2: Okay, I've got a question for any of you. Um, why do you think that we can show better structural healing, but we don't see improvement in patient reported outcomes? Do you think that's the quality of the repair? Do you think that's just our subjective differences in patient reported outcomes aren't granular enough? or is there something else we're missing? I think that's
0: a great yeah, my, my, question. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great question. I think it's a real question that's that's um, plagued the cuff literature for a long time. And I think there's a lot that goes into it. And I think if you look carefully at the questions we ask in our patient-reported outcomes, they're so driven by pain um, that I, I wonder sometimes if the if because the pain relief is so good with treating the biceps and a partial repair, that um, that obscures much of the effect of maybe a hundred percent healing. Um, the same is true for debridement, and the same may also be true because of the length of the outcomes and that the longer you follow the patients that are treated with a cuff repair that doesn't heal, the worse they do. And I think that Moosmeyer has shown that pretty clearly.
2: I also yeah. wonder
0: about the responsiveness of our outcome scores, and I I think that there's more work to be done than, done there, but certainly Um, That's difficult work to do, and I don't mean to act as though the work that's been done so far is for naught. I mean, I certainly have a ton of respect for all the work that, for instance, Mattson put into putting together the simple shoulder test, and that our own society put into creating the um, American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon score, which I think is a good score. What What were you going to say, David?
3: Yeah, no, I I agree with everything that you guys said. I mean, that's the conundrum: like, why aren't the patient-reported outcome scores um, correlated with the the structural healing rates? And I, I agree with Brian. I think that these patient-reported outcome scores are just – it's too much of a blunt instrument. And so I think that when we talk about, you know, did you – did the patient achieve the minimally clinical important difference? You know, um, and I think that the majority of the patients probably do. You know, so you should probably be looking more at the substantial clinical benefit instead. If 80% of your patients are all meeting the, the MCID, you know, that, that's the bar. Right. So for me, it's more of like who hasn't met substantial clinical benefit. It's almost like analogous to, you know, the rugby players that I care for. And essentially we we talk about return to play versus return to performance. Right. So return to play, I think, would be like meeting the MCID. Return to performance would be the substantial clinical benefit. So. I think that a lot more work needs to be done on that, and I think that when you look at a lot of these studies, like these RCTs that have been done, these are hard to do. They're very expensive. They're the best best uh, data that we have out there, level one evidence or level two. But the MCIDs are flawed. So I think, like, when you design the study, and if it's it's based on uh, a change in the PRO for the rotator cuff, it's going to be hard because I think that that the we have not determined the appropriate MCIDs or the substantial clinical benefit um, you know, for, for these disorders, you know, so, uh, the problem, like we looked at this for a massive rotator cuff tear research group with the ASCS, with the ASCS Merit, for example. And so I think, um, you know, we, we use the baseline and you can look at the literature and it's like, you know, for the ASCS it's, it's, you know, like 20 or 30 points and there's a difference between physical therapy and, and repair. Um, And alternatively, uh, the constant score, right? So it's like 17 and 34 for physical therapy and and repair, respectively. The challenge here, though, is that, you know, the group believes, our group believes that for each surgical treatment strategy, there's likely a unique MCID and or substantial clinical benefit. So again, a lot of work that needs to be done. But I think that's maybe how you might be able to actually show some differences in the future. But, you know. You won't know. You won't know that until you actually do the work, and so. But I think that's exciting stuff. So, how do you marry the, the clinical research with with the biologics work? It's it's hard. It's hard. I think like you know, rotator cuff research, uh, you know, clinical research can be challenging be, because of, of of what what Brian mentioned.
0: Well, I, mean, I think it's even even more than that. I mean, if you look at the the average the average ASCS score after a rotator cuff repair is about ninety. And as you mentioned, the MCD is twenty to thirty, and the max score is one hundred. So it's actually not possible to power a study to show an improvement of the MCID because of a ceiling effect within the score itself. What are your thoughts on this, Rachel? I and I know you've done a lot of research on stem cells, and I know you've done work recently with the MCID. What, how, how do you navigate around this in your own work, in your own clinical work and research work?
1: Well, I think this is such a hot topic, and I'm glad we're discussing this. And I I love that we're talking about the MCID, particularly as it comes to rotator cuff repair and outcomes. I, I kind of think of the MCID, whether it's for cuff or instability or any procedure or, or treatment that we do, as, as just what David was saying, it's almost like it means just good enough. Well, we hope and expect all of our patients to do well, but we need them to get back to what they love to do. And so when we rely on scores or outcomes such as the MCID, we're just saying, okay, if they met that and, and maybe this is an insurance thing and we're trying to prove that what we do is good enough, so it's worth doing the surgery. And that's why our papers are potentially powered to find the MCID for a certain outcome score. I I, I As a surgeon, and I think all of us feel the same way, we're not hoping for good enough. We're hoping for awesome, rock solid, excellent, back to golf, back to soccer, back to whatever they want to do. Um, and so I I am conflicted with MCID because we we want to know that we're good enough, but we're not striving for good enough. We're striving for excellent. Um, and so I, I totally agree. It's, it's like getting back to sport, but getting back to the same level as what you had before your injury or intervention is really what we're interested in. So we have a long way to go. And I think the cuff is probably one of the more challenging areas in which to explore this simply due to the fact that outcomes don't correlate with imaging findings um, with any sort of frequency or predictability that we know of. You know, so I guess I don't have a good answer to that question, Pete, but I would say that we have a lot of work to do, a lot of area of, um, you know, interest from, especially our young listeners, if they're interested in getting research grants or starting projects to look into these areas, this is an area that's ripe for new study and investigation.
0: Well, let's move on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, growth factors. So we've heard about, you know, growth factors you take from the body and you concentrate somehow, but there are some now commercially available Growth factors were common. And of course, there's BMP, which we've used for a long time in fracture and for spinal fusion, and people have used in off-label other circumstances. You can also now get platelet-derived growth factor (PDGF), which there is some evidence for in the cuff on the basic science side. So, Brian, tell me your thoughts. Is there any role to put these growth factors that you could just buy? I mean, you could you could do this right now. You could you could buy these. You could put them in your cuff repairs. Is there a role for that? Is there going to be in the future?
2: Yeah, I think the, you know, is interesting. Some of the uh, research by Johnny Heward, um, he's been at a variety of different locations, but I think it was back when he was at Pitt, looked at what is really important in PRP. And one of the things that can, kind of rose to the top was platelet-derived growth factor. Um, the problem is, is even though platelet-derived growth factor or a variety of other things kind of rise to the top, I think it's too simplistic of an approach. And I think we can see that in a variety of different settings where, You're asking your body for a rotator cuff tendon to heal to basically get get as close as possible to recapitulate what happens on an embryonic state. And even if not, um, to at least get close enough to stimulate some sort of tendon to bone healing that has some scar tissue formation that's fibroblastic, but also has some true tendon to bone fibers, or at least approximates that. Platelet-derived growth factor isn't going to do any of that. Neither is any other simplistic cocktail of um, three or four growth factors. And then I think the cost of it is going to get prohibitively expensive. And the reality is I don't know how much to add. I am always am concerned by that initial study by Scott Rodeo that, and others um, during that time that showed too much of a, great, of a good thing actually inhibited healing. So unless I have that data, these single growth factors are going to remain um, not in my wheelhouse. And I know I've said that for every biologic that we've talked about so far, but I really just don't know. I don't know how I would justify using it at that additional cost over improving the biomechanical strength of the repair or going a little bit slow with with rehab or cutting the biceps and making sure they don't have biceps pain afterwards.
0: What are your thoughts, David? Is this, is this the future or is this just too simplistic as Brian says? Yeah,
3: no, I agree with Brian. It's too simplistic. So, I think that single-factor therapy is, is is probably not the solution. I mean, our preclinical data supports that showing that, you know, single-factor single factor therapy is not the way to go. It, it's, it's more, you know, where you have tissue-engineered constructs, essentially. So, you know, something similar to what um, one of the things you mentioned, Peter, like, you know, that Purdue um you know essentially like a cancellous bone allograft right so you have the unmineralized fiber cartilage and the mineralized fiber cartilage from cadaveric specimens and it sounds like this is now being uh, tested in, in 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 humans in, in a clinical trial at uh, in chicago at rush so i think that here the most important thing is that you need the cells you need the scaffolds you need the growth factors and so you know a lot of uh folks have shown this and i think that's really really important so for me just like brian said you know using only pdgf or tgf beta 3 for example is not the panacea here really it's about you know what mooney has uh, david mooney from from harvard has shown is that you know you build these constructs that they hydrolyze at different time points during healing right and so this is where you know what, what brian mentioned you know the first he wants something that's going to be able to elute Um, over a six-week time period, right? So, identifying the growth factors that are are most responsible for um, minimizing inflammation. Some inflammation is important, but minimizing the bad inflammation and optimizing the good inflammation, uh, and then, you know, bringing all the other uh, building blocks and players on board, you know, during those first six weeks, or could even be up to three months, especially for these massive tears, because you know, the guys from University of Michigan and Cleveland Clinic have shown in their elegant studies that all of these repairs, they, they all stretch out, right? So, at one year, they all stretch out about a centimeter. So, uh, how do we, you know, minimize that tissue creep uh, and minimize that fibrovascular interface tissue? So, it's going to have to be uh, a multi-factor therapy uh, using a tissue-engineered construct.
1: Let's move on to a different topic that both Pete and I are interested in, and this is interpositional patches. Now, we're not talking specifically about dermal allografts or xenografts that you put on top of the cuff or using, for example, as an SCR or a bridge between an irreparable cuff and the tuberosity. We're discussing a patch that you put between the tendon and the bone as essentially a sandwich for a repairable tear. There are a few commercial products available available wondering if these are part of your practice and should we be using these on all tears or any tears? And if so, which ones are they? Brian, let's start with you.
2: Um, so I love the idea. So I think when we look at where we have failed in biology, well, I did, none of us hopefully failed biology, but we failed in rotator cuff healing is augmenting that tendon to bone healing. And I look at um, what makes the most sense is to have something in between tendon and bone that's going to be somehow bioinductive and stimulate some sort of increased healing. And as Um, just said, we need to decrease the time it takes to heal so that these repairs stretch out. And one of the, going back to why people can look healed on imaging, but probably aren't doing quite as well or different with patient reported outcomes is I think those studies are right. I think these repairs stretch out. And in some patients that repair gets so thin that it's just not, it's not Essentially holding up, and it's too thin to actually carry any load. And those are the patients that say they feel different, but not necessarily better. I think when you look at the two places where we can put a patch, we can either put it underneath um, or we can put it on top. And whether or not that's a some sort of tunable scaffold um, or something that's just simple, and then that adds a little bit more for uh, essentially either to maintain cells within that environment to maintain a more like. You know a buffer for an environment for healing i think over the next three to five years those are going to become almost commonplace especially as the cost for those come down
1: and david how about you what are your thoughts on these
3: yeah so these interpositional scaffolds so the way i like to conceptualize these you know i was talking to to my patients or let's say to trainees would be, you know, is this more of a biologic scaffold? Is this a mechanical scaffold? Or is this a hybrid uh, biologic plus mechanical? So a lot of them to me that are available right now uh, on the market, uh, they they act more of uh, such as like a biologic scaffold, right? So you look at BioWix. So I believe like Zimmer is, is, um, you know, device company that, that offers that. I have no, uh conflicts of interest with zimmer whatsoever so uh but the point here is that you've got an anchor and it's a fenestrated uh anchor and uh there's a little bit of you know scaffolding material uh that that's there i think it's like a plla or plga or um composite but essentially you know i've never used that anchor before but i really don't think that that type of anchor is really going to move the needle because essentially, you know, the anchor is like four four to five millimeters in diameter, and um, the scaffold, you know, is just a few more millimeters larger than that. So, like, you're, you're talking about the mat, like, let's say, like, the GT is completely exposed. So, each patient's different, but let's say you've got, from anterior to posterior, you've got about two centimeters of that greater tuberosity that's exposed, the full thickness tear with tendon retraction, and, and so, you know, you're not going to really be able to cover up enough of that footprint with this. You know the biowick biologic scaffold right so to me i don't think that that really moves the needle and whatever additional cost that is compared to a standard anchor um you know it, it's not going to help me i think uh you're looking at some other biologic scaffolds i think one that's intriguing is human amniotic membrane uh you know, that's something that we looked at in the lab um you know there's a lot of different uh studies mostly down in the foot and ankle uh literature that that shows some promising results but again these are you know extra articular uh, a tendons and the rotator cuff, you know, has an element of uh, of it being intraarticular, particularly if it's a full thickness tear, and and you know the capsule is is fused with with the uh, the human rotator cuff tendon. So human amniotic membrane, I think, again, acts as a biologic scaffold. Doesn't give me that mechanical strength that I need. and That's why I think, uh, you know, Peter mentioned the the bio thesis. So to me, that's more of a hybrid, of biologic and mechanical scaffold. So. Um, you know so you know I'd like to look, know a little bit more about that uh you know peter what what do you know about that since you brought it up and I think the the folks at rush are testing it is that correct and you know is it available
0: for for use uh by let's say like you know s- surgeons in the u s right now I believe the biothesis products is is commercially available I haven't used it. I have used the biowick product I should mention that our research program has received some um some financial report from Zimmer specifically to test that anchor. So I have used it in that setting. And, and um, I mean, it, it's the, 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 the little pad that you get, we called it the lily pad that comes out of the anchor is actually slightly larger than the anchor, but I, I think you, what you mentioned is true, which is it's certainly not large enough to cover the whole tuberosity. And, um, I w- thus far, I don't, I'm not aware of any evidence that it's better. I know Zimmer has done that study, but I haven't seen the results from it. Um, I, you mentioned amniotic membrane, and that's something that I don't know a lot about. Brian, I know you've done a ton of work here on biologics generally. What are your thoughts on amniotic membrane or amniotic fluid? Is this is this going to be the place for it? How would we use that?
2: I'm going to defer that one to David since I think he published um, using human amniotic membrane in OJSM, I think, two or three years ago. Um, so I would defer to, to David on this as, as he's the expert. Yeah no thanks thanks Brian yeah i mean you know listen um I, I think it it's promising
3: right so i think that the next step would be the problem is like delivering it so it's very thin uh the nice thing is that it comes in like large sheets um but it, i consider it like as thin as a Listerine strip essentially and so the handling of it uh you know you, you you're a little bit concerned uh in a wet environment um there was um there i believe there are some um
0: clinical trials
3: being done in Texas uh, with this material uh human studies rotator cuff repair but we don't know uh what the results uh we don't we don't there's no like um interim data that's been published yet and there's been no guidance yet right but so i think you know generally speaking about human amniotic tissue based products um you know i think uh, the rationale for it is that uh, it has certain proteins in there uh for example like tgf beta 3 um, that you know help decrease the amount of scar that's formed at the interface. I mean, that's what we showed uh, in the animal model. Is a massive rotator cuff chronic, uh, uh, massive rotator cuff injury and repair model in in the rat. Uh, we did find that uh, essentially that uh, the attachment site histologically uh, appeared uh, more more normal or, or recapitulated the the four zones, right? The the tendon, the unmineralized fibrocartilage, the mineralized fibrocartilage, and bone. Uh, but i think that like using it um, you know you can use it uh clinically there's no issues with that um you know but uh you have to be careful about like off-label uh uses and so there's different types of amniotic tissue-based products uh, there's ones that are dehydrated is it decellularized right so we found that uh the human amniotic membrane uh does have uh you know does have cells in there you know i mean it's it's been uh, dehydrated uh, but these cells are dead, but they they could still respond, right? Um, and so then you also have like micronized lyophilized human amniotic membrane, and that's considered more than mi- minimally manipulated. So that would be an off-label use, and so that that's not good. So you need to know like what you're using with these human amniotic tissue-based products, and then there's a, a lot of gray areas, I think, with with use. You, you know, uh, a lot of different companies that that provide this product. Uh, I'm not wedded to to one single company uh, over another. But it's something that I think has promise and needs to be investigated more. You could use uh, umbilical cord as well, so that material is a lot a, a lot sturdier. Um, it's got you know three layers, and so I think that would um, in a wet environment arthroscopically would, would fare a lot better than, than just a human uh, amniotic membrane alone, which is you know as thin as a Listerine strip. Um, but yeah I think that that's, that's where I stand with that. Like I said, I think the bioenthesis. Um, I think that's really, really intriguing device because um, you know it has the potential to, uh, to to load it up with growth factors uh, as well as cells, and so uh, I think that that's pretty interesting there. You know, what are your thoughts? You know, do you guys know anything about that at all? Uh, Peter or, or Rachel about the biome
0: thesis uh, study at all? I don't, but you're we, we're gonna have to have someone on to talk about it so we can learn more about it. We've covered a ton of ground um between you know like local factors growth factors prp patches is there anything else david that you can think of that's on the horizon that we missed anything else you think the listeners should be on the lookout for yeah no i don't i don't think so i think you guys have like you know hit hit the nail on the head and
3: you know i think there's um there are some other companies you know like Biores is, is another company they're they're based out of new haven but you know, they're, they're looking at, um, you know, essentially some, you know, they call it like their bio-brace, but essentially like a PLLA type, uh, you know, biocomposite uh, that's porous. And, and, and so uh, the idea here is that you can use it uh, potentially for like extra-articular ligament uh, repairs, uh, extra-articular ligament reconstructions, and then, you know, perhaps uh, as an onlay um, for rotator cuff, uh, repairs. And again, I don't have any financial, um, I'm not conflicted with them whatsoever, but, uh, you know, it's something that you might consider, for example, like where would you use, you know, uh, maybe perhaps their product, you know, uh, it would be like, if you had like a mid substance rupture of your rotator cuff tendon tear. So you have all this tendon tissue loss and you really don't want to do an SCR and, uh, it could, you know, it only involves a supraspinatus. And so you can either, A, use, hamstring tendon allografts, which I've used in the past for a similar case like that. And this has been described um, you know, from one of the uh, professors out, out in Australia. Um, but you know, essentially, you know, works in the same fashion. Uh, you, know, you get more length laterally, you know, the muscle quality is good, and you're able to reattach it to the, uh, the greater tuberosity. So a lot of these companies exist. And I think that for you know, the, you know, the trainees listening uh, to this, as well as the orthopedic surgeons in practice, Anything that, you know, for me, the take-home points uh, at the end of the day for, for the listeners is, you know, you need to really understand, um, you know, what the latest evidence is. You need to know your tissue source, the graft type, the processing technique, and, and most importantly, you know, counseling our patients, you know, educating them. And this is a shared decision-making process when you're considering using all these orthobiologics. So and really it really comes down to, like, are you an early adopter or a late adopter to, to technology? So everyone has to go through that those questions in their mind you know am i gonna you know use some of these newer products now or should i wait until there's more evidence me personally i'm, I'm more in the middle i'm not the last one to the party but uh, not the first one either with regards to
0: adopting new technology so
3: those are my last my last thoughts
0: for tonight what about you brian i know you guys have been hard at work on this ucsf any glimpses you can give us into a future, you know things we may have missed or anything else you'd add
2: Yeah, you know, I think I'm biased because I think a lot of these commercial things um, have some promise, but I don't think we're, we're anywhere near recapitulating what the body can already do. So I honestly think the next step forward is going to be being able to stimulate your own stem cells or for rotator cuff patients, those that are remaining within the bone, tendon and muscle and leveraging either local stimulants or pharmacologic treatments to stimulate those um, um, uh, tendon stem cells, bone stem cells, muscle stem cells to regenerate at the time of repair. I think that's actually going to be more promising and probably a considerable amount cheaper than putting a patch, scaffold, or umbilical treatment in. That being said, I think the things that to the party with a lot of different options, meaning they have cells, they have some structural capabilities, they have growth factors, are going to be much, much more promising than a single um, growth factor or a a single sponge that's going to be able to be used in nine different body parts.
1: All right. Well, I'm sure with this crew, we could go on for another hour or more about (laughs) everything going on biologic with the rotator cuff, but that is all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank our guests so much for sharing their insight and their knowledge with all of us and our listeners. Um, I'm sure this is going to be a very popular one amongst our podcasts. For all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.